It's December 17th, 1989, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Now, if you're scrolling through Disney Plus today and you see a banner ad for some family sitcom called The Simpsons, and you think to yourself, I've heard of that. I might as well see what all the fuss is about. I've watched all the Peter Pan sequels. I'll start at season one, episode one. Then you will be experiencing the same thing that millions of viewers did on this day in 1989, when Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, the Simpsons debut episode, attracted the Fox Network's highest ever Sunday night ratings. And the show had actually already been a series of recurring sketches on a show called The Tracy Ullman Show. So you had these kind of shorts that preceded this first ever full-length episode. And to explain how cartoon shorts even ended up on what was a primetime variety show, you have to understand that Fox was a brand new network at the time. It had only been around for three years and could therefore afford to be a bit more experimental. I think now where we tend to associate Fox with Fox News and sort of like quite by-the-number procedural dramas, it's hard to conceive of a time when it was seen as this rebellious new upstart upsetting the established big three networks mm. and so the producer of the show who was a guy called James L. Brooks who Simpsons fans may be faintly familiar with uh, <laughs> he was looking for an animator to create these short skits and he had been given a copy of a comic book called Life in Hell by a young animator called Matt Groening. By the time The Simpsons went to air it was the first animated show on primetime TV to debut since The Flintstones went off air in 19 19- 1966. But the fact that it was this sort of dysfunctional family wasn't totally out of kilter with the kinds of things that were on TV at the time, including Roseanne, which was into its second season and was really like making inroads into The Cosby Show, often unseating it and having better ratings Mm. than The Cosby Show. And Married with Children, which was another Fox hit. And worried about money. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, that Married with Children and Roseanne have in common. And that is the plot of this first episode of The Simpsons. It's a bit odd that it's a Christmas special. We'll explain why in just a moment. But the plot is Homer loses his bonus at the power plant. He tries to make it back by being a shopping mall Santa. He then gets screwed for the money on that and saves Christmas by adopting a greyhound, Santa's little helper, the Simpsons family dog. And the plot of that is underpinned by the fact that Homer is struggling for money. Like he has a job, Mm. but he can't afford to buy his children Christmas presents because of the greed of corporate America. That is striking, isn't it? It is straight out of Married with Children or Roseanne. Yeah, to the point that an early review of the show uh, in the Seattle Times explicitly compared them and said, with their garish cartoon colours and outrageous points of view, they're definitely a family for the 90s. So there was this sense that, as you mentioned, stuff like the Cosby show, which was really picking up a tradition of, you know, the Waltons and these Mm. very wholesome family-orientated shows that would always have a hug and a message, were giving way to, you know, what was seen by cultural conservatives as these morally lax times and these families who were behaving in a sort of disgraceful way to each other. I think we see The Simpsons now as being quite a wholesome family. You know, the, most episodes do end with some kind of positive moral most of the time, but you can see how coming out of the Reagan into the George H.W. Bush era, it was seen as a threat. 
Yeah, and there's this point where Bart Simpson introduces himself and he says, I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you? And apparently for reviewers at the time, that was really quite scandalous that a main character on a primetime show would introduce himself like that. And so I think that that's right, that this, even though it looks quite staid to us, and also, frankly, it's filled with quite a lot of overt sentimentality, not just this episode, but The Simpsons as a product. But that was a new and unusual pairing of TV tropes at the time. So the reason that it was a Christmas special that this run starts with, and I've been searching around and I cannot find another long-running show where the first episode was the Christmas special. It seems like a really bizarre idea because there's no format to toy with. I mean, I know the American public had seen The Simpsons for a couple of years in sketches, but it was because it was actually the eighth episode that had been developed in the initial run. And like all shows, I don't discount ourselves from this, shows tend to get a bit better as they go along. People know what they're doing. (laughs) And... The producers just felt this is our best opening gambit. Let's start with the strongest episode. Let's start with Simpsons roasting on an open fire. And what is evident, although it doesn't hit the heights of the rapid fire gags that you see from The Simpsons a few years later when it was an enormous hit, um, is that there are gags right from the beginning. Like the very Mm. first shot is Marge and Homer walking past a billboard for the elementary school annual Christmas pageant and it has a rating on it three and a half stars Springfield Chopper which is just a really stupid joke but it's just enough to hint that you need to be watching the background and there's stuff for the grown-ups and then the camera pans around inside the Springfield Elementary School and we see now watching it as someone who's watched The Simpsons for 20 plus years a whole load of characters about whom we've seen entire episodes and yet presumably in this first episode the writers themselves didn't even know what the backstory to these characters were but there they all are yeah, you've got Principal Skinner, Millhouse, Sherry and Terry, Moe, Mr. Burns, Barney is in there, Patty and Selma, Ned and Todd Flanders. They didn't even know that Ned and Todd Flanders were going to be kind of the, the Christians next door at this stage. They were just these annoyingly perfect people. But yeah, just had all of that. And also the show had this kind of meta self-reflexivity that came to be a big part of the show as it went along as well. There's a bit towards the end of the show where Bart says, ah, come on, Dad, this can be the miracle that saves the Simpsons Christmas if TV has has taught me anything it's that miracles always happen to the poor kids at christmas and then he lists off a couple of other big tv shows so already they're saying we are a literate writing team yes. behind this what's often said about the simpsons was that what made it successful was that it was you know adult humor in an animation format and that hadn't really been done but it's not really so much that it was adult humor it was the fact that it was a sort of gen x humor you know it was irreverent mm-hmm. it was ironic it was meta it could break the fourth wall you know the hollywood reporter review actually singled out that line you mentioned Darian. And so it shows mm. how the very idea of even just the most basic form of self-awareness was seen as this bracingly novel idea in a cartoon, whereas a line like that it wouldn't even raise an eyebrow now, but that's because we have all basically been raised on the Simpsons humour. And elsewhere in the review, they said the fact that cartoonist Matt Groening has been able to get away with slamming the American bourgeoisie since last January when the show had started on the Tracy Ullman show has been a miracle. Like, that's how intensely they felt that this was something subversive and dangerous in a way that even when you watch the episode I you know I was thinking back because I've seen that episode tons of times thinking was it you know was it edgier than it than the Simpsons would go on to be and it wasn't at all but that form of humor was just so new and it's because never before on an animated series basically had the priority ever been in the writer's room The priority Mm. had been on merchandising and animation quality. The distinctive look of it, and we haven't even talked about that, I mean, there are only 200 colours involved in the Simpsons colour palette as opposed to the usual thousand or so in traditional cartoons, which gave them a very do-not-adjust-your-set 
distinctive look. Um, mm. You know, it's garish. Although Fox did know that they had some merchandising opportunity on their hands in the first year alone. They sold $700 million uh, worth of merchandise, second only to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at the time. And Tracy Ullman in 1991 filed a lawsuit against 20th Century Fox demanding 5 to 10% of she? all Simpsons profits, including their merchandising. She lost ultimately, but it was her claim that this was a thing that was come up with on my show and for my show and so I should have my uh, share of the royalties but she didn't she didn't get them <laughs> wow that's bold isn't it I and mean, the sketches were deemed so insignificant to the Tracy Ullman show that when the BBC rebroadcast it over here they edited them out yeah have you watched them I mean they're terrible they're, they're, terrible. <laughs> they're yeah. really properly terrible <laughs> and it wasn't just the characters of the Simpsons that were developed for the Tracy Ullman show the voice talent was also drawn from the show uh, mm. Dan Castellanarcha and Julie Kavner the voice of Homer and Marge were already cast members on the show so this for them was basically just a little side gig it's so bizarre to think that there must have been a day on the set where they said would you be interested in doing the voice for these characters who are going to be you know coming in at the start and end of the of the ad breaks and they must have been like yeah all right sounds good and then like 30 years later this is what they will always (laughs) be known for It's interesting as well that Homer is the one voice that's changed a lot. You know, he sounds like a sort of 1940s newsreader or he's sort of got a... Walter Matthau it was modelled on, apparently. Oh, was it? Okay. Mm -hmm. All of the others are really very recognisable. Even if their characters switch quite significantly. I mean, Lisa becomes much more progressive and intelligent as the show goes along. Initially, she was just meant to be a sort of tearaway, not dissimilar to Bart. Bart was initially seen as the clear protagonist and that became a cause for headaches for school principals around the US because the show was an instant success and within months many schools had banned clothing and accessories featuring Bart Simpson or bearing any of his daringly anti-authoritarian catchphrases like don't have a cow uh, eat my shorts eat my shorts I mean who would want that in school Yes. Yeah, uh, the one that upset everyone was um, when he says, I'm an underachiever and proud of it. That actually caused some debate in the public sphere about, you know, how can we be telling America's children that it's okay to be an underachiever? Mm. Well, that was the George Bush quote, wasn't it, that everyone knows? I want America to be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons, hmm. which was very narrow sighted at the time. Like every, Everyone watching knew that America already was like the Simpsons. That was why it was successful. Mm. Yeah, mm. and they had the comeback where I think it was done in the voice of Bart Simpson where he said, the Simpsons are just like the Waltons. We're praying for the depression to end too. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. If you're dancing and you're wearing black tie and you've had a few cocktails and you fall... <laughs> Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.